was missing a page of sermon notes there for a second. Okay, we're good. We're good. Let's uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for allowing us uh, this opportunity to study the scriptures again. We thank you that you feed us morning and evening. Thank you that uh, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we pray, Lord, that tonight we might feed deeply on the scriptures and on the Lord Jesus Christ. May, Lord, the, the preaching tonight encourage each and every person here that they, Lord, would feel their inner man strengthened and that they would feel um, their hearts burning within them like the men on the road to Emmaus who listened to Jesus as he expounded the scriptures about himself. So, Lord, bless us to this end and to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, tonight I want to talk about love and service from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and want to do so in three points. First of all, I want to ask the question, is the end near? Uh, and then subtitle, first point there, live soberly and wisely. Live soberly and wisely. The second will be live lovingly. And then third, live as good stewards. Live soberly and wisely. Live lovingly and live as good stewards. Now, verse 7 might be a little jarring to us, especially as an audience that's 2,000 years after these words were inspired and written, the end of all things is near. We have to ask ourselves, did Peter get this wrong? What's going on? And the answer to that is easy. It is no, Peter <clears throat> did not get this wrong, because Peter is not speaking chronologically here. When he says that the end is near, he's speaking eschatologically. What do I mean that Peter, boys and girls, is speaking eschatologically and not chronologically? Put it more simply, Peter here is saying that the last days, or what we might say the last age, is upon us in Jesus Christ until Christ returns. Christ, with the coming of Jesus' earthly ministry, with the advent of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, we have entered into that final epoch where he will remain in glory and build his church until he comes again. And that is what Peter has in mind here when he speaks of the end of all things is near. Or if you have a footnote like my New American Standard has, it says literally has come near. That is the end has come near. This is an eschatological phrase here. It's to, so that we understand we are living in light 
of a new eschatological reality, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, has brought us into this age uh, in which we live, which is the beginning in Christ of the age to come. That is, I think I've explained this to you a few weeks ago, you have to realize the glorified new heavens and new earth has already begun in your regeneration. You're the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth in what God has done in regenerating your soul and bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ and beginning to sanctify you, and that's going to glorify you. And God will, in the end, prepare a new state uh, of creation for you that will be fit according to the new nature in you. So when Peter is speaking near here, he's not necessarily telling that first generation that, you know, Christ was going to be returning just in a few decades here. He's, I think, speaking here eschatologically. And in light of this eschatological reality, you have these exhortations. Look at verse 7 again. Notice here that based on this eschatological reality of our life in Jesus Christ, he says, number one, be of sound judgment. And then secondly, he says, and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, what is sound judgment? Well, it means to live wisely. Live as people who know how to conduct themselves in light of this truth, this eschatological reality that the kingdom of God is broken in among us and live out of the life and the priorities of that kingdom. We, uh, you know, you get a, a sense of this if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because I think Paul gives you kind of in a very applicatory way um, what, what Peter is saying. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, you remember he's giving instructions here to people who are married and unmarried and people who are born into slavery and in all different stations of life. And when you get to verse 29, listen to what Paul says, because I think it's the same thing that Peter's saying doctrinally. I think Paul is just applying it to the lives of the uh, Corinthian church. In verse 29, he says this, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. That sound familiar? Okay, the eschatological reality that has come into play because of Christ. The time has been shortened. That's what Peter was saying. The time, the end is near. The time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now that doesn't mean neglect your wife. Paul says elsewhere, love your wife as Christ loved the church. But just stay with me here for a second. We'll talk about what this does mean. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice, and those who buy as those who did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now Paul is not writing this to sound deep and have you scratch your chin, uh, but rather here he is saying what? That those who are blessed, that is those who have spouses, those who have uh, material goods, they, those who are blessed should not live as though this were heaven. 
And then he says, those who are suffering, that is, those who weep, uh, th those who are suffering should not live as though something far superior is not coming soon for them. He's saying, essentially, Paul is saying what Peter is saying. Live as a people of sound judgment who recognize that the time has been shortened and that Christ's kingdom will soon be here. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. The people, for example, boys and girls, you think of in Noah's day. Did they live soberly and wisely? Well, I think we have to say they did not live wisely and soberly. Why is that? Well, because they were warned about the judgment that was to come, or if I could use the language, the age to come. They knew that the flood was coming in one sense because Noah told them. Noah was building and constructing uh, this huge ark, and, and yet um, Jesus tells us that they went on their life as though nothing was going to change. And they were, they were marrying and they were giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking with no thought of judgment. Even though Noah had surely been warning them for years. But they had no sober thought of, is Noah right? Is God really angry with us despite the fact that everything seems good and right and normal now? You see, only Noah lived soberly. Why? Well, because Noah and his family were building the ark. They were living with wisdom. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Noah's neighbors had no fear of God, and thus they had no wisdom that could save their soul from eternal punishment. They were not living wisely. They were living as though all there was was this world. <coughs> their wisdom consisted only in common grace, earthly matters. Peter is saying we are to be a people of wisdom and prayer. We thank God for the blessings we enjoy, but we know that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Bible says money makes like wings and flies away. We know that today's health is only a prelude to tomorrow's hospital stay and death. The wise man knows that his life is, is nothing but a vapor or a morning mist that as you drive into work and then disappears by mid-morning sun. Now, it's interesting when you look at verse 7 that Peter conjoins... The idea of sober judgment, sober living, wise living with what? Prayer. He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. A wise people will be a praying people. Praying believers know that they'll meet God and they want to know God now. And they want to be recognized by God on the day of judgment. They, they are... They tremble at the words, depart from me, I never knew you. These are terrible words. And they desire above everything else to be known by the Lord. And thus they seek the Lord regularly, even, even daily. This is what it is to live soberly uh, before the Lord. So that's number one there, that we are to live soberly and live wisely. Now look at verses 8 and 9, and I'll... We're going to see here in verses 8 and 9 that we are to live lovingly. Live lovingly. In verse 8, it says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers 
a multitude of sins. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. So to keep fervent in your love, live lovingly, not only wisely, soberly, but fervently loving one another. Why? Well, because living together in a church is like living in a family. And there are always going to be multiple ups and downs as in any family. There will be all kinds. Uh, Jay Adams said that uh, living a life in the family or in the church is like driving a bumper car. <laughs> and you're always going to be bumping into somebody some, at some point. Well, how do we deal with these ups and downs? Well, Peter says here we do so by loving one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love gives grace uh, and enables us to move on and to be reconciled. And not only to love fervently, but also to be hospitable. Um, that we are a, a hospitable people. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says that we are to be contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. In 3 John, verse 8, Therefore we ought to support, show hospitality to such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Remember that um, this is how the church often had to grow was as evangelists went out, they needed a place to stay and they often would stay in the homes of believers in the church as they went on their way. 1 Timothy 5.10, uh, let a widow be put on the list if she has shown hospitality to strangers. So one of the qualifications as to whether a widow is supposed to receive church support or not was did she show hospitality? Um, you have Acts chapter 16 and verse 17 where Lydia invited the Apostle Paul and his uh, fellow colleagues to stay at her place. Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, they entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and it says, Luke says, we stayed with him. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 23, Gaius of Corinth, uh, we are told Gaius is host to me and the whole church greets you. And uh, you can look at the Old Testament as well. Abraham and Sarah were hospitable. Uh, Lot, Gideon, and I think those are the ones that actually, um, that passage that I read to you from Hebrews is referring to. Uh, people who showed hospitality, but without knowing it always, they were actually entertaining angels. You think about how Abraham and Sarah entertained the angels prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, you remember, entertained the angels on the night prior to the destruction of that community. Gideon, we are told, um, shared a meal, and uh, the angel of the Lord said, well, I'm not going to eat it, but, you know, put it on this rock and I'll offer it in a fiery sacrifice and did that and then went up in the flame. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, not Gideon, the parents of Samson. I got that confused. The parents of Samson. 
So anyway, um, there's lots of Old Testament examples of this as well. Now, um, this does not mean we should give hospitality to false teachers. Second John verses 10 and 11 say that we should not be uh, giving hospitality to false teachers. Now, what does this mean and what does that not mean? And that sometimes needs to be clarified for people. It does not mean that we um, are to refuse hospitality to non-Christians. Right? does not mean that. We, we show hospitality to non-Christians. You can show hospitality to people of another religion. Uh, you, it does not mean that you uh, abstain from showing hospitality to Christian teachers who, with whom we have minor differences. But what John is saying there is that those who are heretical teachers and theologians who are actively promoting deadly error, we are not supposed to support them in that endeavor to spread that which is untrue. Does that make sense? So that, that, that command not to show them hospitality is not saying don't show hospitality if they're of a different religion necessarily, but if they are going, you know, if they have a ministry that is seeking to promote this error and they're asking you to show them hospitality as a means to staying and promoting that error in your community and then moving on, that's who I think John has in mind. Also, we have to remember that we are to refuse hospitality to a brother or a sister who has been confronted about a grievous sin in their life, but refuses to turn away from it. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 <coughs> and verses 11 to 13, Well, let's start at verse 9 just for the sake of context. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, he says in verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. So he's not saying here you can't associate with people who are non-Christians and live like non-Christians. What is he talking about? Verse 11, he says, I wrote you to not associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So here's a situation where they had a man. He was engrossed in morality in the church, and um, he had been confronted about this, and, and apparently he was not even repentant about it. There seemed to be even some kind of uh, perverse pride uh, about this immorality. And, um, and, and Paul was saying here, look, you need to deal with that man. Uh, who, is, who is living this way. He calls himself a Christian. He's a member of your church, and, and he's living in sin that even the Gentiles think is kind of gross. And so he, he said, you need to deal. Don't worry about the non-believers outside. God will judge them. God will take care of them. But you need to uh, not show hospitality to this person who's been confronted by the church and by the elders of the local church. They are to understand that their, their sin is, is causing disfellowship. And if they continue in that sin, 
it's going to continue to ruin the fellowship. Now, if a person comes to seek counsel and prayer and instruction about a sin, that's an entirely different matter and should be treated as, as such. But here we were dealing in 1 Corinthians 5 with somebody who won't listen and is still in the church. There's a great need for this uh, verse to, in, in our day. I think communities uh, probably do not know one another as well, especially as uh, communities become less and less Christian. Uh, there is less and less of knowing your neighbor, less and less interest in your neighbor. As we increase in apostasy and ungodliness, there's less desire to uh, know and love our neighbor. And so there's less hospitality going on. And so here's an opportunity for the church to really stand out. Many of you may be able to think about what it was like when you were growing up and comparing it to the way we live now. Uh, there's even, this is probably true even in greater uh, metropolitan areas. And there's a number of factors to that. The increase in telecommunications, home entertainment, all of this makes social life more individualistic. But hospitality um, opens the home. Now, it doesn't mean you have to put on, you know, anything fancy. You just do what you would do as your own family. Uh, just make others feel welcome and at home. doesn't mean you have to go to extraordinary lengths. Um, you know, Martha Stewart's not coming over, so don't worry. <laughs> you know, just do what you do, you know, on a normal day. Um, it, it, it's an opportunity to make visitors feel welcome and at home, assimilating newcomers uh, into the body of Christ, and also taking care of needs of people uh, who, who may have a, a need for that hospitality. Luther and Katie, um, Martin Luther and his wife Katie were quote by one author, legendary for open home and liberal hospitality, unquote. I remember um, talking to a ruling elder many years ago. He was a ruling elder at the church, uh, young people, where I went to seminary in Orlando, Florida, and um, the uh, ruling elder was commenting on our pastor, uh, Larry Miniger, and um, made a point of the, the showing how hospitable the Minigers were even when they, it came time for them to design and build their home, they could have designed it in such a way that every kid had his own room, but they specifically um, designed it uh, that, that um, the boys would be in one room and the girls in another room so that there would be more area for hospitality. There'd be more room for uh, youth group meetings to come over and also should they have any guests so that they... Um, they created this giant rec room uh, for larger gatherings of people. And so they, they built their home. This elder was just kind of sharing with me how they built their home, even with hospitality and ministry in mind. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you may want to just maybe occasionally put a regular time to invite people over. Um, might want to identify neighbors or coworkers. Uh, or maybe it's just um, 
people that you have an interest in and have them over, especially those who cannot pay you back. Remember Luke chapter 14, verse 12 and 14. Jesus said, you know, don't just invite your friends uh, over and they just invite you back in return. Uh, you have your reward, but invite even those who can't pay you back uh, in this world. Well, let me move on to the final um, part, and, and that is to live as uh, good stewards in verse 10 and 11. Look at 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This, I think, is territory much like uh, Paul covers in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Um, Peter's just encapsulating it in these two verses here. And, and that is that in the body of Christ, there are many gifts. Paul goes on, you'll remember, and elaborates that illustration of the body. We can't all be the eye, can't all be the hand, can't all be the mouth. Everybody's got different parts to play. And here Peter is saying, as God gives you a particular gift to go ahead and just utilize that gift. Soberly assess where those gifts lie, what stage of life you're in, etc. And, and seek to dem uh, demonstrate the love of Christ in using those gifts. In verse 11, he gives a few examples. And again, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, you'll see it's, it, the list is longer. Paul goes into greater detail than Peter does here, but you get a little sense of it in verse 11. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking utterances of God. Now, I don't know whether this is prophecy or tongues or what he has in view here, but whatever it is, um, he is saying here, and remember, for those of you who are new, by the way, I, I am a cessationist, <laughs> uh, just so you know, um, when, it's, when I speak here of the utterances of God being possibly tongues, Keep in mind that the, that was a gift given to the uh, early church until the canon had been closed, until the scriptures had been completed. People of God didn't have necessarily all the New Testament letters that you have in your uh, lap today. And so sometimes the church was dependent upon God giving them direct revelation uh, through the gift of tongues. And I do believe that the tongues that are in view there are that of uh, languages that could be understood and, and that were not studied. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, when um, the apostles are speaking in tongues, you'll note later, a few verses later, the audience is saying, hey, we are hearing the gospel each in our own language, meaning each in our own native home spoken tongue, okay? So I think those, that was the view of, of the tongues involved there. That gift, I think, has um, gone away with the, the passing of the apostles, but we always have to read the Bible in the, um, as it would have been written to the original audience. So all that to say that the, the speaking the utterances of God could be a tongues for this original audience. It might be prophecy that Peter has in view here. There are different gifts that involve the speech. And you remember that Paul said, I would rather, <laughs> you know, um, prophecy, prophesy than speak in, you know, tongues all day long because um, you, who, people are edified more by the preaching. 
So anyway, uh, he goes on, you have the speaking, the utterances of God, uh, whatever that might mean in that occasion. Whoever serves, there's another gift here, is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So, and, and there he kind of ends it. So he doesn't have as long a list as Paul does in his letters. He's just trying to give a sense of the differences of gifts that are out there. Now, two things to keep in mind here that Peter says about the employment of our gifts as stewards. Number one, it is for the glory of God. Number one, it is for the glory of God. It is God who is to be magnified through the use of our gifts. Our gifts are not chiefly for ourselves or our own uh, good, but for the good of the whole church. So our, our, our aim is to honor God by using our gifts. We do not, uh, young people want to, what Jesus called, bury our talent. What does that mean, to bury your talent? It means to take some blessing, gift that God has given you, and fail to employ it. And you remember the story about the talents, and one man, he you know, was given five talents, another guy got two talents, and another guy got one talent, and the first two guys doubled their talents. The five-talented guy gets 10, two guy doubles it to four, and the one guy, he, he buries it, and he's afraid. And he said, I, I knew you to be a hard man, and, and so I, 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 I have it here, and here's what, you know, you gave me, and I give it back to you. And he got rebuked, didn't he? Um, he said, you could have at least put it in the bank with some interest. You could have at least minimally employed it. Now, I don't know if putting it in the bank, actually, you can get profit from that today, given what inflation is. I think you're still, you're losing money, <laughs> even in the bank. But, uh, but anyway, the point was that he didn't do anything with it. And it never, it was, it did nobody good. He just buried it. So we should not bury our gifts, but employ them for the good of the church, but for the glory of God. You know, um, Jesus said, so let your, um, so let your gifts shine before men, your graces that God gives you shine before men, that they may what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do these good works <coughs> that that the watching world would see and glorify God. So we, we want to employ our gifts, not for our sake, own sake, but because of God's name and glory. We want it to be honored. And then notice here, finally, that Peter says uh, it is also for the not only the glory of God, but for the dominion of God. Not only for the glory of God, but for the dominion of God and the dominion. To whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. What does that mean, the dominion? It means for the kingdom of God. The kingdom which is growing and the kingdom which is eternal. Uh, we employ our gifts so that Jesus' kingdom would grow. Jesus' kingdom would multiply. More people would get saved. More people would be built up in the faith. That more people would have eternal life. That the nations would know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that uh, more and more glory come to God, even as he said it would, from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for uh, Peter's word, and uh, pray, Lord, for future blessing, as the Spirit be the after preacher. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> We're going to sing 497 in the uh, hymnal. So let's uh, stand together as we sing more love to thee, O Christ, 497. More love to thee, O Christ, 